This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jody Vance in for Simi this week. And our hot question actually comes from this uh, global uh, Ipsos poll. Did you hear about this? Have you been listening this morning? Gord McDonald and I were just talking about it and what's happening right now. And it's that it's fascinating numbers. 61% of Canadians are opposed to pipeline blockades. Okay, that's not surprising. 61% of Canadians are like, come on, we got to move our goods and stuff. Let people get around. But 53% think police should move in and dismantle them, right? So that's according to this Ipsos poll. But 75% of Canadians say we need to do more when it comes to helping First Nations people towards reconciliation. Uh, Here's Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, on this topic. Well, what we found was that while Canadians feel that something needs to be done to improve the lives of their Indigenous brothers and sisters, 75%, which is incredibly strong, and has gone up quite considerably over the years, I would say. They don't agree that this particular series of tactics that are being applied by certain groups of the Indigenous community are actually justified and and should be done, and in fact, want to take quite strong action. 53% of the people we interviewed, more than half, say that the police should actually move in and do something. So our hot question is kind of about where you fall in this. So, uh, the polling showing that the anti-blockade sediment is the most prevalent here in BC and Alberta. So two provinces that depend heavily on moving natural resources to market. So what do you think here? It's pretty straight up, straight up question. Where do you land? Do you oppose pipeline blockades or do you support protesters? Just like that. Options are oppose, support, or indifferent. At Jody Vance is where you'll find this poll, at CKNW as well. You can hit up our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. We'll take your calls on this and uh, play them throughout the show, maybe a little bit later, do a segment about this, because I think it is a straight-up question here. Where do you land? Do you oppose pipeline blockades or do you support protesters? Oppose, support, indifference. At Jody Vance, Jody with a Y. That's our hot question of the day. Luckily, our next guest is extraordinarily patient. I know, he has to edit my work at the Orca. He is the editor-in-chief of the Orca BC. McLean Kay joins us on the line. Hello there. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Busy day for you yesterday. Did you enjoy being in lockup? Um, I'd be lying if I said it's a, it's a barrel of laughs, but uh, <laughs> it, is, it is definitely a lesson. Can you give us an idea of what it's like in there? Are you allowed to tell us what it's like in there? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, tell um, us. We actually have to surrender our, uh, our phones, uh, and they're sealed in envelopes. Uh, and there's no internet access in the Victoria Conference Centre. So from about uh, 9 a.m. until the finance minister starts speaking in the House, which is approximately 1.45, uh, we have no contact with the outside world, and we are given a thick stack of budget documents to pour over ourselves. Um, the uh, finance minister comes out uh, to, at first to sort of give us a rundown of uh, of the budget, and then later to answer questions. And at various points, we are allowed to interact with the uh, various stakeholders, and there's hundreds of groups that come to the budget lockup, um, but only after uh, the minister has uh, fielded questions. It's It's a full... I was going to say it's a full morning, but it's actually more than that. It's a full day. 
It's a full yeah. day. And you're, you know, you're a dad of a little. It's hard to go without your phone when you, when your heart lives outside your body. That's, that, <laughs> that would be the thing to that me bugs me. I turned in my phone is what yeah. happens if they call. <laughs> that's the one thing that gets me on the, otherwise I'm like, that's fine. Take it. If I, you know, but okay. So let's unpack. I'm calling it BC budget boxing day. Cause it's when we're sort of able to sort of, you know, peruse <laughs> between the goodies and the not so goods. Uh, definitely a hot topic today is that sugar tax. Yeah. So you're, where do you land on this? I mean, Gord McDonald and I were both like, oh, maybe we're just old and want, don't think that sugary sodas are all that important. But then some would say that this is ultimately a, a tax on the poor. Well, that was the criticism uh, when similar moves have been made in, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, I guess Denmark had it was one of the first to do this and has, uh, has backtracked because that is exactly the criticism, is that lower-income people disproportionately drink a lot of pop hmm. for whatever reason. And so um, from a lot of uh, points of view, this is something of a regressive tax. Uh, the NDP, in their budget materials, um, explained that most all of their budget uh, was uh, examined through a uh, gender lens. And, um, and on the pop tax, uh, they said that uh, men overwhelmingly drink uh, more pop than women, although they didn't give um, percentages, and that young people um, drink more than older people. So it's essentially a tax on young men. Huh. I have no problem with a deterrent for my young man, my 12-year-old, <laughs> who might be like, you know what, that humongous sugary pop drink, that's too expensive. Well, and honestly, when I first read that, I, I raised my eyebrows because I, I, in my limited experience, think of pop as you know, not necessarily a male thing, no. but sort of more even. But it was clarified to me that this will include, you know, energy drinks, which mm, I probably right. are much more male. Yes, good point. Um, other things that are sort of coming from this is the streaming tax. Yeah. For me, when I heard about this, Richard Zussman, honestly, he came out of lockdown, uh, lockup. I was going to say lockdown, lockup, <laughs> and he turned on his phone, and it was literally us phoning him live on the radio to say, "Okay, what do you know?" And and when I heard this sort of Netflix piece, we'll call it, um, I thought, well, that's just going to be passed on to the consumer. Yeah, it's uh, and you know the, the kind of the galling thing about this is, I mean. We we just talked about the pop tax, and there's another new tax measure that we can talk about later. But they were front and center in the in the budget materials. The, the province was saying, Carol James was saying, we're doing this. What we're calling Netflix tax was buried on page 64 hmm. uh, in a listing under you know other things they're doing with the PST, and it literally just says you know registration requirements expanded, and then saying that uh, you know providers of telecommunication services have to register um, uh, as tax collectors. Uh, and then we'll presumably be charged PST. And it's never actually spelled out that that's what this is. And we had to get clarification that this does include streaming services. And so, yes, it is entirely accurate to call this a Netflix tax. But the province, they, they, didn't, they didn't want this to come up yesterday. They, it, it was never called this, and it, it is very much buried. Somebody else had to bring it to my attention yesterday. Hmm. Interesting. Why would it be buried and also, why would um, the benchmark for the quote-unquote super wealthy be $220,000 a year? Well, it's because they need to collect enough revenue. Right. I mean, if, if you call, uh, if you decide that the super wealthy are, let's just pick a number, they, they make $2 million a year. That is a, even in British Columbia, that is a vanishingly small amount of people. Mm. So to make the difference, the bottom line, uh, and this is what they had to do to have a surplus in this budget, is they had to sort of, uh, the, the 1% had to be, there had to be enough of them to, you know, collect a significant amount of revenue from. 
Jody Vance in for Simi, continuing our conversation with the editor-in-chief of the Orca BC, McLean K. Now, before we continue talking budget, McLean, I have to point out that you craft each morning, weekday morning, a newsletter called The Fin that basically outlines the must-read articles from all publications in British Columbia to stay up to speed on uh, varying views and opinions and news in BC politics. And I just wanted to point that out to our listener because I use it as a resource. You kind of read all the papers for me and then say, hey, by the way, you should read these things. So signing up for the FIN, how do we do that? Uh, just It's uh, 100% free on uh, the orca.ca. All you do is uh, enter your email address and you'll have it every morning. So entering your email address, people go, ooh, am I going to get spammed then? Uh, no, the only thing you'll be getting uh, from us is the fin. Absolutely, absolutely nothing else. In your inbox, bright and early. That's what I like. I wake up, I have my coffee, I sit down, I look at the fin, and I click through. And actually, that's where I found Mike Smith's column this morning, and I really enjoyed reading Mike Smith's column, um, sort of speaking to the taxes that we are looking at uh, within the BC budget that was tabled uh, yesterday at the BC Legislature by Finance Minister Carol James. We have phone lines open six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. If you want to chime in reaction on the budget, but we kind of focused on the, I don't know, negatives, the taxes going up, the cost to the taxpayer. But McLean, I wanted to dive into a couple of things that maybe um, were like, okay, well, there you go. You know, some health and some social side, some education um, gimmies, I guess, in what is a contentious uh, topic in this province anyway, that balanced razor thin surplus budget. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think as Les Lane pointed out in his column this morning, the list of uh, capital projects goes on for something like 12 or 15 pages. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I won't even try <laughs> and <laughs> no. summarize it here, but there's, there is a lot being built right now. Uh, and the NDP will, will um, uh, rightly point to that, uh, as well as what they're calling the uh, new BC Child Opportunity Benefit, which launches uh, later this year. And it's basically expanding grants for uh, for uh, families and kids, with uh, especially with uh, childcare spaces. And w- within the education piece, like trying to help with the teacher shortage. Yes, uh, they are hiring uh, more teachers, and I want to say it's something like four thousand two hundred. And I don't have it in front of me, and I forgive me if I'm wrong. That's okay. But, yeah. But hiring more teachers is music to the, those of us who have children because we know that oh, yeah. classes are stacked. And oftentimes in the last number of years, we've seen retired librarians teaching grade six. There's no question that uh, BC has been suffering and grappling with a teacher shortage for some time. And so, yeah, any step in the right direction is a positive thing. All right. So we can read a summary from you on the budget at the ORCA? Yes, absolutely. Uh, as well as some, uh, some video uh, analysis as well. Oh, I look forward to the BC Poly Hot Stove every <laughs> single day. You and Jordan Bateman is just, or every single week, I should say. It's just, uh, it's a pleasure to watch you guys break it down. So I appreciate you taking some time out for us today, McLean. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That's McLean Kay, the editor-in-chief at the Orca BC. So you go to theorca.ca. You'll actually find my column there. My column's called The Middle. I always try and find a little middle ground between polarizing topics. You can probably guess what I'm talking about this time is how are we going to uh, stop the madness of the protests without making it even a hotter sort of showdown situation. Lots of talk about protests. Uh, lots of talk about blockades. I mean, protesters showed up at Premier John Horgan's house yesterday, uh, trying to grab attention, grab headlines, and do a citizen's arrest, apparently, of the Premier. The Premier had already left for Budget Day yesterday morning when the protesters attempted to perform that citizen's arrest on his property. Uh, 
because of the budget lockup, uh, we weren't able to actually get anyone on at the time, but we wanted to bring in Liberal MLA Ellis Ross today to get his reaction specifically to what happened at Horgan's house and then in a more broader sense, what we are looking at in terms of messaging that protesters are uh, attempting to get across if it's a missed message. Ellis Ross is with us. Thanks for being with us once again, sir. Thank you. So let's start first with uh, your thoughts when you first heard that protesters had showed up at uh, Premier Horgan's home. Well, it's the second time in his term this has happened. And, you know, as political leaders, whether at the bank council level or municipal or provincial, we expect criticisms and abuse. We expect it. But you you cross the line when you drag your fa- their family members into it. That's crossing the line. I agree with you. I spoke with a, a, a protester. Chrissy Brett was on with us yesterday, and I asked her specifically about this because it had just happened. And Chrissy said, well, you come to our door, we're coming to yours. That sort of tit for tat, that um, two wrongs don't make a right piece can, can escalate pretty quickly here, can it not? You know, I've never seen anybody in terms of a pro-pipeline uh, supporter go to somebody's protester's house and actually pick at them and try to arrest somebody that's trying to oppose a pipeline. Right. That's a totally different context. Now, can you explain, uh, Mr. Ross, uh, if I may call you Ellis, um, to our listener, a little bit about your background, if they're unfamiliar. Obviously, you're a BC Liberal MLA for Skeena, but uh, tell us about your, your background, your heritage, how you grew up. Uh, born and raised on reserve. I still live there today. I'm 54 years old. And I basically grew up just like every other average Aboriginal grown-up reserve. No future, drugs, alcohol, violence, abuse, you name it. Uh, I saw it. I experienced it. I lived it. I even did it myself. And so when I became a leader for my band, I decided to do something practical uh, and solid for my people so they didn't have to go through what I went through and my what uh, my previous leaders went through. So you've grown up... In the community, as you said, you've seen the struggles firsthand. Gord McDonald and I were talking a little bit earlier about protesting uh, pipelines, the acrimony here, and and sort of what we're seeing both locally and across the country in regard to protests. And yet it always seems to come back to the five of 13 hereditary chiefs who oppose coastal translink uh, pipeline. How should... In your uh, learned opinion, how should Wet'suwet'en solve this from within? How Can they? Well, they can now because uh, basically the members have been told that their voice doesn't matter from their leadership, from their hereditary leadership, and that it doesn't matter if you have a public meeting or not because the hereditaries are going to basically stick to their plan to stop uh, the pipeline, which actually goes against the principle of rights and title because rights and title is actually held on behalf of the community. The community owns the rights and title. It's not one specific organization, so it only stands to reason then whoever represents the, whoever the people, the community want them to represent, they're the ones that should be speaking out on rights and title issues. So I spoke with Chief Namox, a hereditary chief who opposes the pipeline. I spoke with him last week, and he really seemed to poo-poo the elected chief's sort of... Um, I don't know, power is the right word. Authority, I think, is a better word. He said, you know, my name is a thousand years old. Uh, elected chiefs uh, are are there on the reserve, but he is a hereditary chief of all of Wet'suwet'en land. Can you give some context to that? We're, we're all learning so much about this. 
trying to find a way to navigate through this is, is very difficult. Yeah, that's part of the subversive campaign that uh, basically destabilized democratically elected bank councils. Mm-hmm. And even the unit of BC Indian chiefs actually goes along with this narrative, which is crazy. Why would a name like Union BC Industry stop the progress of Aboriginals in BC? Why would you actually go and attack elected bank leaders saying, that, oh, they're only jurisdictions on reserve, it's only a postage stamp? Why would you say that when, when we're trying to better the lives of our people, we're trying to build a better future? And it, I haven't seen any of this in writing anywhere. The case law, I haven't seen anywhere. We're with Ellis Ross, who is a BC Liberal MLA for Skeena, and lived experience, frankly, in, in seeing the struggles of First Nations peoples and and wanting to make lives better. I mean, reading up on your bio, what you have done and, and, and where how you've strategically put yourself in positions to guide and lead and, and have a seat at the table in government so that th- that that First Nations people's needs are heard and business can be developed. You you are very vocal and adamant about the fact that so many people need this type of opportunity, this type of job opportunity. If it's not a pipeline, it's something else. But need this yeah without doubt and i can't take credit for this because uh, all the leaders before me actually actually developed this idea that actually my uncle hebert makeland that coined the term we just want to share and say before the rights and title case law was uh, established in fact when i became an elected leader i'd go to public meetings and our others would always get up and say you know where's the jobs for our kids you know we want to be part of the economy we're tired of being poor and being left out of everything that's happening in Kitimat one of uh, the richest communities in Canada at one time. So it, w- it wasn't actually my idea. I just develop- helped develop the, the plan along with my chief and council. What do you say to the protesters who are basically making the, the stance or argument that they are standing with? With, with Aboriginals? Or, yeah, well, people, people that, that, would, that would disrupt here, let's say, uh, blocking bridges in Victoria. And and saying just not really having a message other than I stand with. How do you? How can a Canadian? How can any? How can any Canadian, regardless of heritage or religion, stand with First Nations people truly toward reconciliation? Well, reconciliation is a different question. But if you really want to protest something, protest the high level of suicides that's higher per capita than regular Canadians. Protest mm. that. Protest the high level of Aboriginals that still go into prisons. Please protest that protest the idea that we make up the biggest population of children going into government care. Please blockade the legislature. Do something. Help us, because that's what we've been doing for the last 15 years, and we made tremendous progress in my band. Why do you want to stop that progress, and why do you want to put us back under the Indian Act? And I'm talking to the Union of Beasts and Chiefs as well. Why do you want to do this when the whole fight was self-determination, independence, and the ability to address our own issues on our own terms, which is what we've been doing for the last five years. We don't need your outsider influence to destabilize and stop everything, because we made tremendous progress. And in order to build on that progress, this particular issue is really becoming a national, uh, well, it's just an everyday constant news cycle story. I mean, even today we're talking about between five and seven at Broadway and commercial, there's going to be a protest that's happening that's going to snarl afternoon uh, rush hour traffic, which is going to frustrate citizens of all walks and and put them in a position to maybe have more of, I don't know, a negative view uh, of what they might have supported 
two months ago. And it goes further than that. And I've already seen uh, uh, rumblings of this on social media. You know, these leaders who are recklessly stating these, these opinions out there, they have no interest in what happens to regular band members right. that go to the grocery store to shop. And they get accosted by people that can't go to work or get a paycheck. And these average Aboriginals have no political bone in their body. They don't want to shut down Canada. They don't want to blockade anything. They actually enjoy the hospitals, the highways. They enjoy all the services. They have no interest. So it's it's very unfair to drag them into this when they're just going to try and go about their, their lives. In fact, people, non-natives as well, you know, you think about this. There's a person that's got to get to a hospital. And you're not an Aboriginal. You're Aboriginal. I don't know what you are. But you can't get there because you got to get diverted. Now, this is getting serious. I mean, this is, and, and it's, not, it's not based on fact. None of this is fact. And so, Canadians, you now know what First Nations feel like to be told 1% of the story and used and manipulated for somebody else's agenda. You now know what it feels like. Wow, I just have to let that sit there for a moment. I really appreciate your time, Ellis. Thank you. Ellis Ross, BC Liberal MLA for Skeena, giving perspective on this. Give us your thoughts on it. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Great news there from Dr. Bonnie Henry, the BC Provincial Health Care Officer, just giving us updates. So, so there was the fifth presumptive case, the woman in her 30s who lives somewhere in the interior health region, still symptomatic, however, recovering in isolation at home. Everyone else all four others recovered. That is great news. Let's hold on to the positives with regard to COVID-19 and how it has impacted uh, BC. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, delivering that news at a press conference live that you heard here on CKNW. I'm sure you'll hear more, of, hear more about that over the course of the day because we certainly want to reference it as well. As Gord McDonald and I were chatting about earlier uh, in what's happening right now, so much of my day comes back to what happens with Gord, I tell you. Because uh, we do have these great conversations and you know, with about 500 passengers Uh, leaving the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama, Japan today at the end of a two-week quarantine. Um, It's not really clear how that process of quarantining a cruise ship actually helped. Like, did it help? Did it hurt? I mean, over the past two weeks, we've been touching base with Spencer Fehrenbacher, who is a Fort Langley man who was on that cruise ship and was very, very grateful when he started his 14-day quarantine on the boat uh, that he had paid the extra for an outside balcony cabin. Oh, okay. Should we pause here for a second? Okay, we're going we're gonna to try and connect with Ross Klein, who's a sociology professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland, who actually studies the cruise ship industry. Because my question, where I was going with that about Gord, is like, who... Who's going to maybe go? I don't think I want to go on a cruise ship, and that's not a slight against all the fantastic cruise lines in the world. So hold your horses on thinking I'm painting everything with one brush. But are you thinking just a little bit about it? Uh, we'll connect with Ross Klein as soon as we can. But first, uh, let's get to the CKNW financial series. Now, the global news and 980 CKNW financial series. Presented by Envision Financial, a division of First West Credit Union. Are you currently putting aside money for a savings goal? If so, you should consider putting money into a TFSA rather than a regular savings account. Here's David Yan, Vice President of Wealth Management for Envision Financial. 
The big difference there is the tax-free savings side. So if you put money in a savings account or term deposit for that matter, then any interest you earn or any dividends or anything you earn in there, 100% taxable. Mind you, if you have that term deposit in a TFSA, it's all tax-free. So whenever you withdraw it, you can take it out, no tax implications. The key thing I do want to mention about a tax-free savings account, they're not a savings account. I think the concern I, we see at the, at the credit union is the fact that people treat it like a savings account. They'll put money in one day and then two months later try to take it back out, which they can do, but that's not what it's set up for. Putting in money in today and taking it out two or three years from now, no issues. The whole point of it really is the fact that any income you earn in there, whether or not it's interest, dividends, capital gains, a lot of people will put their stocks into a TFSA because if it doubles or triples, for example, none of it's taxable. The Global News and 980 CKNW Financial Series. Presented by Envision Financial, a division of First West Credit Union. Oh, I love a TFSA. Do you love a TFSA? I learned about these a number of years ago. I was not. I was just a squirrel with my RRSPs because my stepdad taught me when I was 15 and I started my first job at Dairy Queen. He said, now put 10% away. He goes, you don't understand compound interest today, my darling, but you will one day. And at 52, I do. You know what I'm saying? But good advice there on the tax-free savings account that many people don't even know exists. Uh, you know what? As I was telling you before that financial series, um, kudos to Claire Allen for putting that together. I, I was telling you about uh, the, the cruise ship industry, right? We were pondering what's the fallout from COVID-19 and all of the polarization, all the spotlight that the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama has garnered. Uh, 500 passengers left the Diamond Princess cruise ship uh, in Japan today at the end of a two-week quarantine. Not clear how many Canadians were allowed off the ship in total, but some experts have called uh, a perfect new coronavirus incubator that cruise ship is it served as an incubator because earlier today, Japan actually announced 79 more cases aboard the ship, bringing the total to, are you wait, got this? 621 people. When I first spoke with Spencer Fehrenbacher, it was 39 people just over, I guess, 10 days ago now. So what's the impact of this uh, on the cruise ship industry? From the norovirus to measles, they've dealt with their fair share of viral outbreaks. Certainly the staff and, and medical uh, on these ships, highly trained, but you can only do so much. So what does this do to your psychology if you love to cruise? Well, let's bring in sociology professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland who studies the cruise ship industry. Ross Klein is on the line. Hello there, sir. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you. So we've been following along the story of the Diamond Princess. What, what from your learned perspective, have we seen unfold and how might it affect the cruise ship <clears throat> industry moving forward? Well, it's, it's, it's been interesting to watch and as, as things kind of unfold, I, I think in the short term, it's going to have a significantly negative impact uh, on the cruise industry in terms of, in terms of sales and image. Um, I, I think some people may distinguish the Caribbean from from Asia, but I think still uh, people are going to be shying away. As well, the the industry is going to have. I, I think just Princess alone has three or four ships now that will be idled uh, for the next three to four months, and then you've got other other companies in the same situation. So, I I think it's. Um, I guess on the one hand. I think people are going to be shying away from cruises. On the other hand, for those who want to cruise, my guess is there's going to be some real bargains to be had. 
that's a big piece because cruise cruises are uh, definitely a high end option and ever higher. I mean, mm-hmm. there there's some that are five star. This is some somewhere to 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 take the risk out of your vacation when you get on a cruise, and all of a sudden there's a risk element here. Oh, exactly. I, and I guess what I'm speaking, I, like I saw an ad the other day for a cruise for less than $70 a day, including free Wi-Fi and drinks. What? Yeah. You know, <laughs> Where was that? Wait a minute. I'm changing my mind. I'm going back to cruising. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think we're going to see more of those sorts of things that the, the, because they make money once you're on board the ship. Right. But having deals that are so inviting you, it's hard to resist. Because, again, if people are dissuaded from taking a cruise they can they can do one of two things that they, they can do a media blitz which they'll certainly do and the other thing they can do is to uh, manipulate prices in order to reach a point where people are willing to go yeah i have a friend of mine who has been had her to- entire career uh, on cruise ships either as a port and shopping guide and then she was in the very lucrative field of future cruises and being able to have you know just learning behind the scenes how you can you know shift the cost of a cruise to entice a future booking you can save 30 percent if you book before we dock in the next port you know there's that sort of um sales oh, yes. tactic that comes into play right yeah, and again, and, and, and I guess the pivotal point is that the cruise line, by not having passengers on board, loses considerably more money yes. than they ever make by selling a cruise ticket. They can give the ticket away for free and still make a profit just by having the passenger there. Right, because it's already set up for it to happen that way. If well, that passenger's well, not in that cabin, you still got all the food that they might have had. Oh, oh, I'm thinking more in terms of onboard spending, yeah. uh, shore excursions. A cruise ship's going to earn about $100 per passenger per day, net profit just in onboard spending. Net profit, 100 per head a day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because wow. you've got the casino, you've got all kinds of activities, you've got the extra tariff restaurants, I mean, and on and on and on. Uh, so, you know, they, wanted to, they just have to get you on board. Isn't uh, that something? Getting money for that ticket is just gravy. We're with Ross Klein, a sociology professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland who actually studies cruise ship uh, in the the industry. So what is a tariff uh, restaurant? Oh, it's an extra tariff restaurant? Extra tariff restaurant, right. Our our, our traditional sense of cruising, which was when when we thought of it as being all-inclusive, was that we went on board and you could go to out to dinner at any restaurant that's on board. What came about in the early 2000s is you could go to the regular restaurant or you could go to a alternative restaurant that maybe has a theme or has, you know, has steaks, whatever, and has a, a tariff, an extra charge to it. Mm. So you may spend an extra 5 or $10 or more in order to go to this restaurant even though you've already paid your cruise fare, that's all inclusive. And it seems like, what? It's a deal. We're right here. We're all dressed up. Why wouldn't we pay a little bit more? Right. It's only $15 or only $10. <laughs> it's funny. And I actually, members of my family go on cruises. They love to cruise, especially my father-in-law. And, and he does like a bargain, I'm just going to say. He enjoys, yeah. he enjoys a bargain. And he does look at cruising as a very... Uh, affordable option because you kind of know you can go on board and have it be mostly all inclusive as long as you understand your wine budget. Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, for the new cruisers, they get drawn into it for 
those of us who either get experienced or those of us who are just plain frugal, which I'm one of those types, yeah, uh, you know, they're not particularly happy with us. No, exactly, because we're get, we're gonna get, milk it for all we can and what we paid exactly. up front. So, in terms of this industry, getting back to the uh, the coronavirus yes. or COVID nineteen, um, Ross, what? What what do you think long term happens here? Is this like a blip on the radar, and everybody sort of gets over it? And with the glitzy marketing campaign, and maybe some some really enticing savings that people just forget it and let it roll. Well, I think that's what's going to happen on the consumer side. I think the other thing, though, is what's what's how this is reshaping in some ways the relationship between the cruise industry and its ports. Mm. So what we saw was while this was going on in Asia, several ports in the Caribbean uh, refused ships entry because of norovirus. Right. Now, we we haven't seen that before. We haven't seen the boldness on the part of ports. And so my guess is that the coronavirus, even if it disappears, it's created a different sensitivity to viruses generally. Interesting. Uh, And I think it redraws the landscape of the way ports are going to be dealing with cruise ships and when they let them come into port. I'm about a five iron from the port of Vancouver where the cruise ship terminal is right here, and I would be happier that, that, that a ship would need to stay sort of waiting off the port of Vancouver or the the cruise ship terminal down at Canada Place, I guess, is more accurate. Um, If that is the new normal. But imagine the backlog that could happen if there was some sort of outbreak um, on multiple ships. Like, and then... You know, I I really feel for these people on the Diamond Princess who were locked down for for 14 solid. Oh, I cannot imagine what it must have been like. And and then the people who are getting off, and if you're not testing well, then you've got a a different state of limbo. And the people who were, well, even the Canadians are get, who are going to be, who are, because now the plane was going to fly out today or tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, they also, they're going to be coming to Canada for another period of, of, of quarantine. It's just, I just can't imagine. I'd rather be at CFB Trenton, though, than on an inside cabin. Will they be able to rebrand this boat? What goes into uh, to changing the name on a ship? Oh, I, I don't think uh, I don't think that that'll be necessary. I think I, I think back to the poop cruise, right? right. The old Carnival Triumph. Yeah, uh, they they just cleaned it up, and it was back sailing within a couple of weeks. I think right. in this case, you know, they're going to sanitize it, and they're going to relocate it to a, uh, a itineraries off Australia because that's safe. And it's probably going to be the cleanest ship in the fleet. Oh, exactly. I think one of the things that was scary was I saw an interview this morning with an epidemiologist who went on board the ship yesterday, and he he described a situation where apparently they weren't even following many of the the protocols that they would normally follow. Right. No green zone, no yellow zone, no red zone. I think I saw that same same interview on uh, CBC News Network. Uh, Ross, thank you for this. Oh, great chatting with you. Really appreciate your perspective on it. That's Ross Klein, the sociology professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Time to connect now with An- Angela Calla, a name that you will definitely recognize if you listen to CKNW on the regular. She is the host of The Mortgage Show here on CKNW as well. Obviously a mortgage expert and best-selling author and all around. A nice woman. Nice to have you on, Angela. Oh, nice to nice to be with you, Jody. Hey, and you sent this email to us yesterday to the newsroom because there was some breaking news. It was interesting because it was breaking news about right when the budget was coming down, the BC budget. And uh, I looked at this. I'm like, wait a minute, this is federal. What is happening? <laughs> There's a change. Tell yeah. tell everybody what's changing with regard to mortgage stress tests. Excuse me, stress 
tests. Yes. Well, the news is that as of April 6, 2020, they're going to amend the stress test to be 2% over the contract rate. So for our, uh, our insiders, we actually sent out an email that broke down. If you're currently pre-approved for a mortgage, um, at $120,000 a year in annual income that qualified you for about five eighty. Mm-hmm. with this new change that will increase your qualification to about 607500 So it would increase the amount that you qualify for by about twenty five to 27000 Wow, that's a significant bump. It's, it's 3% of the overall qualified amount. But you know, Jody, I have to say, this is really a political move. Oh, is it? Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you, these banks, they can change their rates, their weekly um, meridian rates every week, mm. and they all manipulate them a little bit. So 3% is certainly a step in the right direction. But our industry has been advocating for other changes to be more reflective in the statement that came out. They mentioned that they felt that this would be more reflective and not as onerous as the previous qualifying rate, which was about 30 basis points higher. But in our mind, it's still not enough. 2% over the contract rate is still quite onerous compared to what people are actually paying and the income that it does take to qualify for a mortgage in in today's day and age. Exactly the numbers that you laid out, Angela, are numbers that a good friend of mine in her, actually, she just turned 40, just purchased her first space and the qualifying process and the stress test that she had to go through. And literally, they they forced her, even though she had plenty of money to pay off her car loan that she had, they were like, no, you need to get rid of that before you even... You know, qualify for a mortgage to get the offer down on the space that you're looking to get that is well within her capability um, to to manage. You know, it just seems like it's super stress test. Well, the middle class is the most impacted by this. And, you know, it's very common. You get into your first home and then, you know, you have a car payment, you have a line of credit, you have a credit card. Um, we work together with Global News on an article coming out about how to utilize your home equity. And one of the things that we talked about in this article that's coming out on February 24th, right after the home show, actually, talks about what people don't realize is if you have a 480 a dollar a month payment on a car that takes away a hundred thousand dollars in mortgage qualification wow yeah no idea well there you go leah now you understand that's my friend leah she was like i don't get it like why yeah so then she went and and paid it off and then it all it all worked out but she was right in that 580 she was looking at another space that was you know just at six hundred thousand for a little Mm -hmm. shoebox here and she had to go with the smaller 580 because that was what she qualified for because of that wiggle room. Yes. And so, you know, what's really interesting about this, Jody, is that the market has been really robust this January mm-hmm. and February here. And so we already anticipated a busier spring market. Also, we had less listings on the market. So the supply got eaten up. So, you know, we are still advocating our industry. The Mortgage Professionals Canada industry is still advocating for we would like to see the return of the 30-year mortgage to the insured mortgage space. The good news is there's all kinds of lenders that are coming out with new products every day that we have access to to be able to help people get the best suited mortgage products for their specific life stage. And so it's a good news when new lenders come to the space and we have opportunities to provide options. And I I just feel, though, that the 3% 
will really get eaten up quickly because it's already going to be a busy spring market and that's just going to drive more people to buy, which will drive prices up. So it won't really have the impact. It's just that not, it was not quite enough. I, I get what you're saying. But for so many, it's like, it's something. It's something, you know, for some people, it can be an extra bedroom, it can yeah. be a parking spot. And, you know, you have your home for security and you want to be close to where you work and go to school. And, and hopefully this will just inch you in a little bit more. So it's a step in the right direction. And I hope as we continue these talks that they're going to see the unintended consequences that we've been displaying time time again for middle-class Canadians and that we can move some of these policies in a better direction. And, and it's nice to see that interest rates are remaining at record lows. And it's nice to see that new lenders are entering the space for different life stages yes. to be able to help Canadians. And for the gig economy as well, people that maybe find themselves self-employed or a freelancer or a contract worker, it's hard to get a mortgage if you uh, don't know how to manage uh, the, the and navigate your way through the system in the traditional sense. Wow. So, Angela, you're you're definitely a touchstone for people who need information on that. Definitely. We're doing a full breakdown, actually, um, at the home show on oh, Saturday from 3 to 4 p.m. And I actually, we work together really closely with accountants and lawyers as well. And for people that are self-employed, there are actually lots of banks out there that will look at your income in a, in a different format. And there's actually some income tax savings that comes along with that as oh. well. So we'll see you at um, the home show is what you're saying. We'll see I'm you at the home show. I'm coming there's to the home show. Options. Thank you, Excellent. Angela. Thank you, Angela Kella. April 6, 2020 is when that change is coming to the stress test. And uh, you can always hear uh, the Mortgage Show right here on CKNW or come to the home show as well. Things are heating up in the run-up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Tonight, yet another Democratic debate ahead of tomorrow's primary in Nevada. Billionaire Democratic candidate uh, Mike Bloomberg will be taking a spot on that debate stage. He's, as many people have said, bought his way in that billionaire. It's a big story. Speaking of big news stories, there are almost too many to list with regard to how busy President Donald Trump has been. You just heard Bruce Allen referencing uh, tweets falling like waterfalls off of his phone. Uh, to catch us up on all this and more, we welcome Global National Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Proskow to the show. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Hey, Jody. Could it be any busier? Every day we say this to you <laughs> when we connect, but between uh, President Donald Trump's pardons and the upcoming debate in Nevada. We got a lot to cover off here. Can we start with what exactly happened over the last 24 to 48 hours with uh, the president and his pardons and William Barr, for that matter, and the rumors of him thinking of quitting? Yeah, it's all kind of wild, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the president has taken sort of a keen interest in the ways that the wheels of justice turn. I, I think at the most basic level, the uh, three people he pardoned or three of the people he pardoned yesterday had all in one way or another had their cases pled on Fox News. And we know that the president is an avid watcher of cable news, specifically Fox, and it really may come down to something that simple. Uh, I think the one that's getting the most attention, of course, is his pardon of uh, uh, Blagojevich, who was the former governor of Illinois, who was convicted of uh, fraud for trying to sell Barack Obama's former vacant Senate seat and sentenced to 14 years in prison. And you can argue that that was too harsh of a sentence and that Trump is commuting his sentence after eight years. And a lot of legal minds have said, yeah, it was too harsh of a sentence. But they also say, why are you using the power of commutation on that guy when there are perhaps more deserving people out there? Well, you would think for sure, and it's definitely hitting the uh, headlines here in Canada as well. Is there any limit 
to the number of pardons that a president can hand out in any sort of window of time per term or what have you? There is not. I think uh, the things that are different with Trump is that he's doing it sort of in the middle of his term. Mm. Barack Obama did most of them at the end of his term. And also Trump is sort of pardoning uh, friends in high places, if you will, or people who've been nice to him, generally speaking. Whereas Obama, uh, I think he did almost 1,800 commutations. They were, generally speaking, for people who'd been given mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses because Obama was trying to make the point about the need for criminal justice reform in this country. Yeah, these uh, most recent pardons don't really um, have any sort of reformative angle to them, it feels like. It feels more um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours and sort of transmitting forward to those who will continue to sort of stay on Trump's team. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of Trump's first pardons, not this last round, but years ago, was a filmmaker named Dinesh D'Souza, Mm -hmm. whose claim to fame before, of course, he uh, had his run-in with the law, was making documentaries about the evils of Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And that's who one of the first people (laughs) pardoned by the president was. Wow. Okay, so William Barr, uh, allegedly, rumor mill is that he does not like uh, Donald Trump, the president, tweeting about the Department of Justice cases. Uh, Any word from the inside on what's happening there? So there are two ways we can look at this. One is that Barr is genuinely displeased with the president and the fact that the president keeps weighing in on judicial cases. The other is Barr could simply be telegraphing to the president, hey, I'm doing what you want. Stay out of it. Let me do it. Otherwise, you're going to make things very awkward for both of us. I think most people lean toward the second scenario. Uh, The question is, does Barr hang in there much longer? All right, let's talk about the debate. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, how much has um, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg spent on ads in the United States so far? Oh, he's cracked the $400 million mark on all of his campaign spending. Uh, He is giving junior staffers, you know, a brand new iPhone and a decent salary and benefits just to get them on board the team. And then there's the hundreds of millions of dollars in TV commercials. You can't turn on the TV for more than five minutes and not see at least two Bloomberg ads down here. And a crafted ad, Jackson, is one thing. But to stand on a debate stage and, you know, have to flex that other muscle. What what are the expectations uh, tonight in Nevada with regard to Bloomberg? Uh, making it to the debate stage. I would expect that he will be the most popular target on that stage tonight. It is remarkable when you think about it that he is now polling third nationally as the preferred choice for Democrats without ever appearing on a ballot. And until tonight, he's never appeared on a debate stage. And yet he's running ads that, for example, uh, if you didn't know better, you'd think that Barack Obama was endorsing Mike Bloomberg based on some of the ads that are out there right now, which is simply not the case. So essentially, you've got a guy who's been able to craft an entire story about himself and what he stands for and has not had to face any scrutiny or even a ballot test yet. It's incredible. It is incredible. And that Mike Bloomberg is polling in third uh, and, you know, Joe Biden is basically nowhere to be found. Many expected that Biden would at least be in that, if not third spot, but top three. Yeah, uh, the, the, the one guy who's very happy right now is Bernie Sanders because his numbers have skyrocketed. He's at 36% support amongst Democrats. A double-digit lead has opened up here in the last week. And essentially what's happened is you've got the pro-Bernie and the anti-Bernie wing of the party. And the pro-Bernie wing is made up of one candidate. The anti-Bernie alternative wing is a scrap between five or six right now, and their votes are scattered all over the place. And so this is great news for Bernie Sanders, if you're him, because uh, you can sort of 
play off of the chaos and confusion. And Mike Bloomberg has been a huge boost in that uh, regard. Wow, it's so interesting uh, to watch the Bernie Sanders sort of movement on Twitter. Anytime somebody says something even remotely negative about that candidate... The pile-on is very swift. It, it, it almost feels like the pendulum swinging to the, the to the farthest reach of the other end of the spectrum, away from Trump. Yeah, it is uh, kind of. Uh an interesting scenario that Democrats face. On one hand, you could argue that, yeah, Bernie's got a lot of loyal followers, but he's got a lot of people who don't like him as well. So he's kind of a dangerous choice in that regard. On the other hand, uh, maybe it's a case of fighting fire with fire. If you put him up against Trump, here's someone else who's an outsider, grassroots based, very loyal supporters, uh, and is detested by the party establishment, which sounds a lot like where Donald Trump was at this stage in the process back in 2016. Absolutely. One more question about uh, one candidate who will be on that uh, debate stage this evening in AB, Amy Klobuchar and how she um, sort of felt that surge out of New Hampshire and Iowa for that matter. Um, where is Elizabeth Warren, Amy sort of within the polling that the numbers that we're looking at right now? Yeah, Warren uh, is still doing better than Klobuchar, generally speaking, although Klobuchar, you're right, had that great performance. Um, you know, I think Klobuchar is going to be sort of tested as one of those moderates in the vein of Joe Biden and Mike Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg. They're all sort of fighting over the same piece of the pie. Mm. And Elizabeth Warren has now landed herself in kind of a chasm here. She's still seen by those moderate voters as perhaps too extreme, too Bernie Sanders-like. But she's not extreme enough for the Bernie Sanders crowd. So she's sort of uh, kind of nowhere right now, which is, I think, a, a shame because she has mounted a very strong campaign, spoken to tens of thousands of voters. Don't count her out yet, but I think she's going to have to perhaps reinvent where she stands in this race. It'll be very telling in Nevada this evening. Jackson, thanks for this. Thank you. Jackson Proskow, Global National Washington Bureau Chief, one of the busiest man, men on the planet. Holy, can you imagine covering... U.S. politics right now, and even over the last three years or beyond, and it's just going to heat up. For those that don't know, I did bring a motion to council last October, and it was called, not surprisingly, Back to Basics. And that was really in response to just going out and about in the city and hearing from residents all the time about the state of our streets and our street medians and our sidewalks. And it's not just a, you know, sort of a pride issue in terms of being the fact that this is Vancouver and we're so fortunate to live here and it was, it's a beautiful city and it, we always felt it was well kept up. It's also a safety issue for people getting around. And I heard from people overwhelmingly. And when we brought this motion to council, I thought that that was a given. It was a slam dunk. And yeah. it wasn't. And we had this conversation at council where I had fellow councillors who tried to water it down and take out language. And, we, I, you know, it said, let's elevate the attention that's given to our street repair and our sidewalks and keep them safe and well-maintained. And they want to take that language out to say, we'll maintain or improve. We'll look at options to maybe allocate some funds in the budget to do it. You know, we'll, we want to have language in the budget that said, this is a core thing that the city does. This is what we're responsible for. They wanted to take that out. That is MPA City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. She was in studio with me yesterday, and I was going bright pink with frustration about this. It is just... It's lost on me how the budget at the city of Vancouver budget is 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 bloated. It's humongous and going up. Our taxes are going up, and I can't even. I've lost count of the number of potholes I hit on my way to work each day. Like rattle your teeth potholes, might damage your car potholes, sidewalks that are impassable for anyone that isn't completely able-bodied. I have neighbors who are in their latter years and maybe walk with a cane or a walker or in a wheelchair. They cannot pass by a city sidewalk, 
across the street from an elementary school. Like this is just, it's got me all fired up. I was putting it out on Twitter yesterday and then I saw a tweet roll by that's like, look at what we're getting done. Just let us know where the problem is and we'll come and fix it. And I looked up at the top of the tweet and there was his name, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, who has agreed to come on the program today to maybe share some insights as to how other cities around Poco might be able to glean and learn from what you're able to uh, get done there. Brad, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jody. So understandably, Port Coquitlam, not exactly the population of the city of Vancouver, a little bit more complex perhaps. But I mean, we mm-hmm. look around and the, the basics are just not getting done in this city. What are, we, what are you seeing that could be perhaps done differently? Well, I, I don't know uh, the situation in Vancouver, chapter and verse, but I, I can speak to what we, we've done in Poco. And, you know, Port Coquitlam is, uh, granted, a smaller city, but we are 60,000 people, uh, and we are a growing city, and we have a lot of basic city infrastructure that we are responsible for taking care of. And, you know, for, for us, it really comes down to what your priorities are. And I know the temptation exists for municipal government to glom on to issues that they think are, you know, uh, flashier or perhaps more newsworthy. But look, the reality is people send their property tax dollars to City Hall for certain things. And top of that list is is basic city infrastructure, sidewalks, roads, uh, the cleanliness of the city. And so those are the things that we've uh, prioritized for our spending we're investing uh, an unprecedented amount of money over the next two years through our capital program to ensure that city infrastructure uh, is brought up to the appropriate standards and, and is well-maintained and kept there. Uh, we've launched the cleanliness program. We, we have a city employee whose sole job it is is to go around cleaning different parts of the city every day of the week we're able to do that by just reallocating an existing position towards that work. So, you know, there, there's lots of people who work for the city, and it's about what do we want them to do? What, where should they be focusing their time and energy? And, and what are the sort of results that we want to deliver? Uh, and in Port Coquitlam, I'm uh, really proud of the fact that we said we want to prioritize the things that we're responsible for and that people send their tax dollars to us to take care of. You know what, Brad West, you had me at priorities because I think that's where the mistake is here. And you're very, you're so kind and obviously a politician who doesn't want to necessarily cast a stone into somebody else's jurisdiction. So my question wasn't 100% fair, but it is frustrating. (laughs) It's like, what can we do? Can we not look around? You know, maybe it's not Port Coquitlam, but Ladner. I I often point to Mm -hmm. Ladner and as somebody who grew up in Tawas and people know that oftentimes you maybe aren't as complimentary as your, to your neighboring city growing up in a town. But I look at how Ladner has grown and the gentle density that is that has blossomed there and how families thrive there. I look at Port Coquitlam and I see your posts about yet another community center opening. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Like places where families who are living in smaller and smaller spaces because of affordability now have a community center that they can go and enjoy as opposed to fighting to keep pools open that are in community places and spaces and watching the parks board battle here. It's, it's one of those things that really has taxpayers frustrated in the city of Vancouver. Can I ask you a question about your budget, Mr. Mayor? Yeah, absolutely. What, how much did you raise uh, property taxes this year? How much, how much more do Port Coquitlam residents need to pay? 
so we have a very modest increase this year. Our property tax increase is 0.47%. <sighs> okay, well, that sounds very palatable. <laughs> Versus <laughs> and, an affordability crisis where we are really feeling it and the potholes and the sidewalks are not fixed and the garbage is overflowing. on. And I got to say, like, kudos to those who do you know, take the the photo that I put up on Twitter of the overflowing garbage can that I just walked by on the city street and they like hit me right back in my DMs and give me a reference number and then next thing you know, it's cleaned up. But sh- yeah. it should just be clean in the first place. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I feel really uh, strongly about is that uh, the, the onus should not be on city residents and taxpayers to you know, have to kind of go and do the city's job for them by finding issues and then, you know, reporting them and then, you know, hopefully it it gets addressed. So, I mean, there's no doubt we rely upon our residents to um, point out areas of the city that need attention. And so one of the things I'm very proud of is we launched a new uh, See It, Report It program, and it's really simple. You do it on your phone through uh, an app that the city has, and you take a picture of a pothole, you know, uh, a light that's burnt out, whatever, and, and we'll be on it and we go and fix it. And I can tell you that thus far, our crews have fixed 150 potholes. Uh, so they've been really good about being on top of it. Uh, but the other thing that we're, we're doing too is, you know, really impressing upon our, our city staff, no matter what department they work for in the city, if they see something that requires attention, uh, that that information is circulated through the city. And so it's not just the onus on our residents to be on the lookout for issues, but the city is out there proactively looking for potholes, proactively looking for, uh, you know, a sidewalk that needs to be fixed. Now you're just so rubbing it in, Brad. You're just rubbing it in. <laughs> well, no, it, I do appreciate it. it. You know what? How this does that process such... work, though? Can you can you give me that? Because we've got an app at the city sure. of Vancouver. I've used it. I've reported this one sidewalk that we now have yeah. called a lake uh, because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a humongous puddle eight months of the year. And I, I bet you I've reported it 10 times. Our neighbors have reported it similarly and nothing happens. Right. Well, I, I know it, <laughs> you know, for, from my perspective, it's not really rubbing it in because this is just like simple, basic stuff. It, it's not rocket science. Uh, and so, I mean, how it works uh, in Port Coquillum is it's fairly straightforward. Um, if people uh, report something through the app, it, it goes to a, a centralized uh, support person in our public works department um, and uh, it gets added to a work order for our crews that are out doing work in the city. Uh, and in terms of the city's proactiveness, I mean, that's something that we've we've really worked with our, all of our employees to impress upon folks. So, uh, our, you know, I spoke earlier about the individual we've hired who is going and cleaning up uh, different parts of the city every day of the week. The other thing he does is he, he acts as eyes and ears for the city. So if he's out uh, cleaning up... Um, you know, in downtown Poco and comes across uh, a pothole or a light that's burnt out that needs attention, uh, he passes that information through the department to the public works in the, in the same way that uh, our residents are able to. And, uh, and then it gets taken care of. Um, you know, it, it's simple, um, 
but it should be simple. It should be. You know, there's no need to complicate this stuff. But you need the culture of inclusion. You can't have silos. Like even when I was on the chat on the City of Vancouver website trying to report the sidewalk and actually not have to pull a string. I don't want to be like, I don't you know where I work? I want to say as a resident, I would like this fixed. Please help me get this fixed. And I was trying to find where to put the picture and I'm on the little chat and they're like, well, it's right there. I said, well, I can't find it. So can you help me find it or can I just report it through you? No, uh, you need to go through proper channels. Like there's just, there's so many silos and, and there are a lot of really great people who work at City Hall, like a lot of people Absolutely. that are working hard for the city of Vancouver. This is not, I'm going to paint everybody with one brush. The frustration here is the basics and what Sarah Kirby Young just said in that clip that we heard off the top, that they're, they're fighting over minutia of language when right. people can't use the sidewalk. Yeah, you. I mean, at that point, you've kind of lost the plot. Yeah. Um, when you get into like wordsmithing, I mean, one of the the things that we've done in our city, I think, that's been very successful is we've created this culture uh, around one city, and that's what we call it, one city, uh, because whether you work for Parks and Rec or Public Works or in City Hall or you know whatever it is, um, you know, your boss is our taxpayers. And so uh, we don't, you know, kind of feel that there should be this, oh, that's not my department. You work for the city. We're public servants. We're serving our public. And maybe it isn't your department, but you're able to assist that resident, get the information and and, um, make sure that it goes to the the right department so they can take care of it. And, And I have to give a lot of kudos to our, our staff and the management at the city really embraced that, uh, that culture and that one city idea uh, and that, you know, we don't work for individual departments. We work for the city and the city is the taxpayers of Port Coquitlam. You're just bringing my blood pressure down because that just makes all kinds of sense. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Brad. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me, Jody. That's Take care. Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam, an excellent follow on Twitter, clearly. Alongside Claire Allen, CKNW contributor, who I was just emailing earlier. I'm like, I don't have enough Claire in this show. Where are you? You've been very busy putting this segment together. Yeah. Tell well, us everything. Well, Jody, are you someone who, you know, loves this sound? Do you know what that is? I do. That's a pop can. I, or a beer can. It could be. But, uh, well, but for our purposes, I'm it's not, a pop can. I'm not a soda drinker. I, in, I like bubbly water, but I like, yeah. I've never been, uh, you know, I've never had to wean myself off sugary drinks. I'll put mm-hmm. it that way. Growing up, my dad loved Coca-Cola, so that was something I would hear all the time. Mm. I think he could drink like way too many. Not not good for his health to drink that much Coca-Cola. You can get addicted to Coca-Cola like you can a coffee because the caffeine in it, yeah. not, not to mention the sugar. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, don't get me wrong. On a hot day, I love myself a nice Coca-Cola, but not a 72-ounce vat of it. Yeah, and especially the older formulations, right? We're right. very different. Yes. Well, if you do like that sound, it's going to get a lot more, well, a little bit more expensive. So in yesterday's budget, Jody, the provincial government revealed that they'll be applying the provincial sales tax, which is 7%, to carbonated sugary drinks. So this means that your $2 can of pop is going to cost you 14 cents more after July 1st. So the government projects that this tax will generate $27 million of revenue in 2020, and then $17 million more, $37 million dollars, of revenue in 2021, which is bigger because we're this year we'll be starting off in July, so we won't be able to collect as much. Gotcha. However, you know this is being, this is a, a hot topic. People feel one way or the other about this. Mm-hmm. 
And Dr. Tom Warsharski is the chair of the Childhood Obesity Foundation. He's been calling for these for this sort of tax for years. So obviously, he's very pleased with this initiative from the government. Well, it's good news because sugary drinks are the largest single source of added sugar in the Canadian diet. And we know the evidence is really, uh, I would say, uncontestable that added sugar has detrimental effects on our health. In particular, liquid added sugar contributes to unhealthy weights, overweight and obesity, with all the attendant chronic diseases associated with that. That's type 2 diabetes, heart disease, 13 different cancers. But added sugar, in particular sugary drinks, are also associated with diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension, regardless of your weight. So you have a product that's out there, widely consumed, which triggers more than its share of healthcare costs, yet isn't contributing anything to help defray these costs. So this this move was long overdue. So, you know, he's obviously in favor, but of course there's the other side. And Always. Jim, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And Jim Getz is the president of the Canadian Beverage Association, and he is not happy about the tax. Well, we're a little disappointed about it because a 7% increase in uh, people's grocery cart bills uh, is not a positive thing and will take money out of people's pockets um, that uh, that they could be spending on, on other things as well uh, in the grocery store when people want to have uh, their favorite beverage. Uh, we're also a little bit concerned about, uh, from what I've read in the budget, from the scope of it, that this tax would also apply to beverages that have either no sugar in it or, or no calories, which seems a little counterproductive when, of course, uh, both government and, and our industry, quite frankly, um, are, are actively wanting to reduce calories uh, in people's diets. So um, this has been discussed for a while within government, but uh, it's disappointing that, uh, from what I've initially read, the, uh, the scope of it. So, Obviously, the beverage industry is not going to be pleased with yes. an increased tax on their of goods. Of course. So I mean, get it. but they will just pass that price on to the consumers. So that's sure. why it really matters what, you know, what, are, what we think, what the listeners think, what, you know, the sugar con- sugary drink consuming public thinks. So what do you think, Jody? Do you think that this will reduce the consumption of sugary sweetened beverages or carbonated sugary beverages? For some, but just like the smoker who's been smoking since cigarettes were $1.75 a pack and now they're what, $20 a pack mm-hmm. or whatever. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and yes, I think it does impact people uh, negatively in the sense that if you can no longer afford that, but in terms for me with a 12 year old, I'm totally fine with things that aren't good for my boy being more expensive. I would like to see some offset for healthy food being less expensive. I'd like there to be a give there. I want to know where that tax is going. Mm -hmm. Well, well, this tax they said will help with like healthcare and stuff like that. So I mean, that is fair, totally. Um, But there's actually some really interesting research from our neighbors to the South in Seattle. So sales of sugar sweetened beverages in stores in Seattle dropped 30.5% in the months after the city adopted a tax on such beverages. And when they looked at Portland, which does not have a tax and look to see what the sugary drink sort of rate was, that um, their sales only declined by 10.5. So that suggests that uh, the sales in in Seattle dropped much more when they did have this tax. So, you know, there is some argument to be made that this will change 
the ad, the uh, behavior of consumers. Yeah. So, well, let's open up the phone lines on this so we can get on it. But stay stay with me here because I want your opinion on it. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. What do you think about the sugar tax? And I know there are going to be people that want to talk just about taxes in general. Let's just be specific to this one because I really expected when I said off the hop of this show with Gord McDonald, when Gord was like, maybe I'm an old guy, but mm-hmm. I have no problem with this tax. I was like, oh, well, I'm an old gal right next to you because... <laughs> I have no problem. I don't like taxes, but if you're going to tax sugar, fine. Mm-hmm. Fine. Yeah. You know, we've learned a lot about sugar. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 hands free. What about you though, Claire? Do you have an opinion on this either way? Are you a sugary beverage type of person? I'm not a sugary beverage type of person, but I also feel like I I, I don't know how much I like the government inter- interfering in my choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like that should be a choice that people make for themselves. Like if you want to drink Coca-Cola, sure, that's on you. But 7% isn't a huge it's, deal breaker, right? It's not a huge deal breaker, right? Yeah. Like we've seen other cities have, um, and countries have had these certain taxes, these sugary, or sugary sweetened beverage, such a mouthful too. I know, I love uh, it. Taxes. Good. And they've been much more than just 7%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess maybe this is the lesser of all of them. Yeah. So for me, that's not a big deal, but I don't really like the idea of the government really getting involved in what choices I want to make. And also I like what you said, is that if you do tax these things that they believe are are, un, are not healthy, then there should be a break on things that are healthy because healthy yeah. food is very expensive. It's and, unbelievable. You can get a supersized meal of beige food that's 99% deep fried mm-hmm. for $3. Right. And you cannot, like, you can get five blueberries off season for $3. Yeah, exactly. Like, I thanks. mean, to eat, a, to eat a healthy meal and buy fresh produce, it's costly. It's, yeah, exactly. It's such a I barrier for people. I got a smoothie the other day. You know, when you go and you get the green drink, you're like, give me the, give me the good smoothie. Was it seven bucks? 11. Oh, 11 before taxes. Jody Vance and Claire Allen in for Simi right now, continuing our conversation about BC's tax on sugary drinks. Will it curb your consumption of said sodas, sugary pops, and energy drinks, which mm-hmm. come into play? Uh, phone board, Lit up. You can chime in 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Let's start with Chris in Maple Ridge. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Hey. So, I mean, I don't don't have a problem with this tax. I think sugary drinks are the death of many people. But let's just look at those coffee shops on every street corner. And my wife, who is actually literally addicted or has been addicted to chai lattes Mm -hmm. at Starbucks. Mm Mm-hmm. Grande chai latte, 42 grams of sugar. Holy. 240 calories compared to a can of Coke has 39 grams of sugar. Does your wife know that she's consuming that much sugar? Like, is She, co- she has been addicted twice and I've been able to get her off them twice. Nice. Now she's into London Fogs, which is probably just as much sugar. Go half sweet London Fog. Trust me, I have one of those at like a week. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, got to half yeah. sweet it because that the couple of pumps of the little the syrup, yeah. the pretty yeah. little she's syrup bottle. Ex- yeah, extra vanilla. Yeah. Oh, Chris. grande grande salted caramel uh, latte or something like that from Starbucks. I just looked it up. Sixty-five grams of sugar. In wow. one drink, 490 calories. I remember looking at Frappuccinos because oh, in the summertime the when everybody's like, oh, I'm just going to go grab myself a Frapp. It's like, that is a milkshake with extra yeah. sugar in it. You just dump sugar yeah. on it. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Hey, so thanks for that, Chris. That's sure. so interesting, Jody. I hadn't even thought no. about that. You know that what? Aspect. Our listeners are smart. <laughs> uh, Wes and Victoria, welcome to the show. What's your uh, thought on this? Oh, hey, guys. Hey. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Of course. I, I, 
something along the same lines. Um, I was just wondering with things like uh, Diet Coke or Coke Zero or Pepsi Max, are those going to be taxed the same way because they come from a corporation that serves Coca-Cola, which has a lot of uh, sugar in it? As well as places like Jugo Juice or Booster Juice. When you go to any of those places, you're getting a, a smoothie or a juice from Sunlight Purse, uh, Sunlight Juice Boxes you put in the kids' lunch. They've got a lot of sugar as well. So is that tax going to be evenly applied across the board with respect to those things? Mm-hmm. So from what I understand is that this is a carbonated beverage tax and that those diet, ta- those diet drinks are included. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the issues. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because you would argue some of those drinks say zero grams of sugar, right? Like you've seen Coke Zero, whatever. For the person who maybe has that addiction to Pepsi, we keep saying Coke, so equal time, uh, have that sugary drink that they're so used to having, and then they default to maybe a diet alternative. I wonder, however, if that gets into like sodas and Perrier's and San Pellegrino's. And is it anything with bubbles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or is it everything with sugar? Thanks for that, Wes. I appreciate the phone call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell if you'd like to chime in on uh, what we think about BC's tax on sugary drinks or carbonated sugary drinks, energy drinks and the like. Will this curb your consumption of those drinks? Ben in Vancouver, you're on the air. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks for having me on. No problem. Uh, I'm I'm also a fan of the London Fog, so I usually ask them to go easy on the syrup, but that's good to know for future reference. Half sweet. (laughs) Half sweet London Fog. Yeah. Yeah. um, Well, actually, you clarified one of my questions, which is going to be, are they going to end up inadvertently taxing high sugar products that are actually pretty good for you, like a lot of concentrated... uh, you know, off-the-shelf uh, juice drinks, they on paper, they're very high on sugar, but, you know, the intake is supposed to be low, and they mm. are, you know, fairly good for you. Pomegranate you juice comes to mind in my, if, yeah, as, a, as a one, like it. the palm, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, some of these things, they are very high in, in sugar, but you, I think you clarified my question there with the fizzy drinks. My other comment, too, though, was going to be, um, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of consumption taxes, and sin taxes are okay, too. Uh, we've been doing it for, you know, hundreds of years, but, um, I, I think that they should really take a look at taxing uh, sodium. I'm, I'm a low-tax guy, but I can see a good tax when I see it. And there are some products out there that have astronomically high levels of sodium. Ben, get your hands off my salt and vinegar chips, day. man. Well, you're you're treading well, careful. No, no, I see what you're saying. There are worse crooks than that. There are worse culprits than that. These I know. little stuff that a lot of people are dependent you're right. on. It's really bad stuff. And yeah. uh, I'm, you know, it, we're talking a lot more about health these days. I think uh, government might want to look at that, too. Yeah, you know what? You make a good point in that regard. I was very, I was very. But it's a my heart rate slope, went up on it? my salt and vinegar old Dutch there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. But no. you're it's right. A slippery slope. Though. It is. It is yeah, a slippery is. slope. Because then is. who's in charge of your ability to have your Hawkins cheesies? Because you know what a portion size is versus somebody who buys a humongous bag and eats them all in one sitting. Yeah, I mean, like somebody. I I enjoy eating a burger from McDonald's every once in a while. Me too. But so am I going to be punished because I want to indulge every once in a while? Right. But you know, you that's should. that's the thing. It's a slippery slope. Kennedy in Vancouver, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi there. Uh, I was wanting to add something uh, because of your previous callers. Sugar is under so many names that you can't just look for sugar anymore. Mm-hmm. Fructose, glucose, yeah. Glucose, fructose, monopoly. Whatever. Palm, palm sugar. They're going to call it tax toast soon. All of that's just tax toast. <laughs> but what, where Corn do you land syrup. on this? Do you, do you have a syrup. problem? Do you have a problem with the, the, the carbonated sugary drinks being tax 
Where do you land I'm on, on that? I'm on the fence about yeah. that because I know that it does cost the system more money in the end to mm. take care of people who consume those beverages. Right. I consume a lot of them myself. But um, the point I actually wanted to call in about wasn't uh, exactly the carbonated beverages. It was potato chips because in England... There's potato chips. They have a snack tax, and then they have a different kind of a tax that applies to potato chips. Hmm. That is why you have uh, Pringles. Pringles are not potato chips. They are really? a snack product. Huh. Oh, wow. They are reconstituted potato product. That makes them not a potato chip, thereby not applicable to the taxes on potato chips. But they would be, con- they would be under the snack tax. Right. Which is cheaper, oh. cheaper than the, the consumer potato. than a potato that? chip. So if you're eating like, you know, a regular chip, like I say a Lay's chip, in the UK you'd be hit with double tax, snack tax yeah. and potato chip tax? Right. Oh, man. man. Kennedy, thanks for the <laughs> intel, buddy. Next time we travel to the UK, pack bring, your yeah, chips. Bring your own. <laughs> bring your own snacks. Stephen in Abbotsford, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to talk with you. Good to have you on. What do you think? Um, well, I'm a nurse. I just wanted to look at this from like a health perspective. Like we have cigarette tax, um, uh, taxes on cigarettes are like hundreds of percent. But I think we should do the same thing with sugar. Mm. The amount of impact it has on like uh, leading to cancer, the development of cancer, obesity, diabetes, everything else that goes along with it, and the impact that we have to pay pay for the upkeep of and the health of people is is the same as having cigarettes. Smoke. It's, you make a good point. Stephen, I have to say before we run out of any time here, thank you for what you do. Because nurses, oh, it takes thank special you. people to do that gig. And, and for you to even take the time to call in and, and share that, because that's part of this puzzle that I think is easy to sort of not ignore but gloss over, mm-hmm. is people like Stephen on the front lines are seeing the, the impact of sugary drinks or cigarettes or, or just high fat Diets, diets like yeah. and and oftentimes people can't afford the nutritious d- diet or have no idea how to cook. It can't, yes. you know, so they default to what's easy. Yes, I actually just spent some time at the Healthy Heart program at St. Paul's oh, did and learned a lot about um about what they teach there about mm-hmm. it changing people's diets and learning about what contributes to heart problems that are in, that's in our diet already. And you know, they actually said that a lot of people it is a barrier, the price is a barrier and also like you said, a lot of people don't know what constitutes as a healthy meal. They really don't know what constitutes as a healthy meal and you, they shouldn't be punished for that. And but that's what an educational piece, like having someone on like Alyssa Bowman, who's a holistic nutritionist, mm-hmm. she, she dials it down to here are some simple things that you can do. I think that the onus should be on, or maybe the tax dollars should go towards more than just a food guide. Yeah. Here's a, here's a triangle for you to follow. Like, But the argument is, is that this is the way they're going, the government, this is the way they're going to get you to pay attention to your health is by hitting you in the wallet, right? right? So, I mean, I don't know if I love the tax, but I could see where it can be effective. It yeah. is only 7%, so 14 cents on your $2 can of pop. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, but I'm glad we talked ahead. it through. 331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. That's a great conversation. Thanks for your work yeah, there, Claire. Get your uh, $2 pops in before get, July. Get them in before July. <laughs> pop off my news hat and put on my old sports cap. It fits nice and comfy. I love talking sports. We need to take a break from the news cycle every now and then, especially when it is a good news. No. A great news story. When it comes to sports in this town, we hear a lot of discussion about those Vancouver Canucks, the Whitecaps, Lions. But if you head east on Highway 1, just a wee bit, out to Langley, you'll be able to watch the WHL's Vancouver Giants, who are currently on a what? 10-game win streak. 
That is a feel-good building, my friends. Barclay Parnetta, the general manager of the Vancouver Giants, joins us on the line. Hello there. What? What? Congratulations. I'm fired up after that intro. That was awesome. I get fired up about the Vancouver Giants because there's something special about seeing the stars of the future when, you know, the hungry grinding in the corners is going on and the expectations aren't weighing them down to the degree that they might be once they make the jump. And really, like, some some of the talent that has come through the Vancouver Giants system is really remarkable. It's, it really has been fantastic. The quality of the hockey is so pure at this level. Yeah. It's not, even though it's coached, it's not quite the same as you see with the Canucks where, you know what, it, there's very few mistakes made. You still see that. But, you know, uh, credit to the Giants organization since the inception of the team being here. They've had a, uh, you know, pretty consistent, um, been successful at getting, you know, players that are exciting to watch over the course of time. And we've got a lot right now. Our team is really rolling and uh, we're all playing together and we have three lines that are scoring. It's been really fun out out there to come and see the games. Really exciting. And we are going to give away a pair of tickets to Friday's game. It's going to be a blast at the Langley Event Centre against the Calgary Hitman. The puck's uh, dropping at 7.30. All you need to do is call in and then you're going to need to tell me who the captain of the team is. So, you know, if your Googling finger is really fast, then then maybe. But I'd really love a giant super fan to win these tickets. 604-280-9898. Call Ben Dooley and, and let him know the name of the captain of the team. But Barkley, I want to talk to you about the fan experience at the Langley Event Center and, and, you know, how much it costs for maybe a family to go because it can be really spendy to get into a Canucks game and parking and how much it costs to have, you know, a hot dog at the rink or what have you. What is the family experience like uh, at the Vancouver Giants games? Well, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the parking is free. Uh, it's easy to get into. Uh, you can get in early and see a buffet. I mean, a family of four can can go through here on a night for you know under a hundred dollars, and that would include your food. So you know, there's all kinds of promotions going on. It's it's it really is too, and it's a fun atmosphere. It's electric in there. It's a it's a boutique chic type of place where when it's full, and we've got fantastic fans. So it's electric. It really is, and. And the, the you know, ring board's going, the sound is great, the, they do a great production of the game. It's, it really is, when people come that haven't been to games that I know, they're always surprised and like, wow, that was a great experience, we're coming back. Yeah, for sure. You can't even go to a movie for in a family of four for under 100 bucks. Like, that is a no. deal. With food? Are you oh, kidding yeah. me? Oh, yeah. Okay, so if somebody wants to come to the game on Friday and they, they aren't lucky enough to win the tickets, um, what are tickets like in terms of availability and cost? Well, I mean, we're always getting close, and, and I don't get those numbers as much as uh, the business department does, but yeah. uh, I, I think you're looking at like around the $22 marker, and, and you can get yourself in there. And if you buy in advance, usually you're, it's better because mm-hmm. you don't want to walk up and then maybe be stuck somewhere where you don't want to sit. So, right. But I mean, we also have a couple of other nights that are going to be interesting. We're March 13th, the BC Wildlife Federation is putting on the Outdoors Men, and on March 20th, it's Fan Appreciation appreciation day we're giving away a chevy tracks that night so that'll be exciting excuse me that yeah, is awesome. Buddy. See, fired up. We're with Barclay Parnetta, who is the general manager of the Vancouver Giants. And if you're just tuning in, the Giants are currently on a 10-game win streak. And that has happened before for this team. It happened back in 2009. In fact, they went uh, even further on another streak later in the 2009 season uh, as well. Like, there's, if not to mention a championship. I mean, go ahead. 2006 WHA. A championship. But anybody who follows along with the Vancouver Giants um, knows and loves the experience of it, the passion the fire, the sportsmanship. It's very, very cool. But for so many, it just falls off the the sort of sports radar and it's right here in our backyard. Why wouldn't we? 
Yeah, no, it, it, you know what, again, once you get out here and you see it, it it's something that you come back to. It yeah. really is. And we've enjoyed some success here. I mean, last year, our run, we really started to put bums in the seats here. And it, I, again, the fan experience is incredible, and that's what brings them back. And, and when you're winning, obviously, people want to come and watch winning teams. February has been really good to us. And, and all along, since the start of the year, we've been saying that, you know, it's a different season. Last year, we're building to the finish here, and that's what we need to be judged on is what we do at the end of the year. And uh, right now, we're, you know, we're building nicely. It's, it's uh, coming along pretty good. All right. Well, Kenan Langley has correctly answered the question of who the captain is. It's Alex Kenick Leapart. Uh, and, the, and we were going to give a multiple, question, multiple choice question. I thought, no, no. Let's let a super fan in on this because you got to know your Giants and love them or be very fast at the Google. But uh, congratulations to Ken in Langley. He correctly answered the question and uh, will be going to Friday's game versus the Calgary Hitmen. I almost blew it there, Jody. I was about to answer it. I thought you were asking me oh. to say his name, and then you're like, oh. You like, better oh. know. You better know. As the general yeah. manager of the team, I'm sure you do. Hey, thanks for doing this. Just a little uh, a little fun and sort of a, of a, a thought of what, what a family might be able to do that sort of takes us out of our regular routine, and certainly Friday, that'll be a good time. Awesome. Thanks, Joey. Really appreciate being on. Have a great day, Barkley. Thank you very much for uh, taking some time out for us. And go Giants, go, right?